This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So Malama Aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm Valerie Wilmes. And we are talking to a, a, a friend of mine, a, somebody who's uh, interviewed Valerie in the past, somebody we both got connections to, but who has come out with a brand new book. Uh, I have done my best to speed read it in the last 36 hours, and I'm going to try to sound intelligent with these questions. Uh, Larissa Zimbaroff is a journalist and the author of the brand new Technically Food Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change the Way We Eat. Larissa, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ethan and Valerie. Great to connect with you again. So let's let's jump in and start with the book. Uh, how did you come to write it and what, what did you feel like was the missing piece in the conversation around tech and food? Yeah, thanks, Ethan. The, the book came from my desire to figure out, are these foods healthy for me? I have a type 1 diabetes, which I talk about in my introduction, and I have been tinkering with my diet for decades now. And one, you know, finding out that processed food isn't very good for me. And with that understanding of food, I look at food, I look at the, uh, the macronutrients of food. I look at its carbohydrates, its proteins, its fat, its fiber, and these these components are in all of our food, but they're in the food very differently. And the processing that our food undergoes more and more these days is something that I have been watching over. And it, it concerns me, this like industrialization of our food and the processing and packaging and snacks, you know, every company is like, <laughs> has a snack department. And so it was as I, as I looked to the excitement of food tech and food innovation, I, it, it reminded me of like internet 1.0 days, like just the, the rush to invest in companies and startups. Um, and it was the same rush to invest in food tech. And I was wondering what about these foods? Like, are they just a uh, same thing, but, but packaged differently with a mission? And these questions that kept coming up, uh, drove me to want to invest a few years in, in writing a book about it. That's so interesting. Cause I, I mean, I think we understand the, the process of publishing a book is a long process. Um, you know, it takes a couple of years before like from the idea being, you know, sold and connected with a publisher until it's actually out on shelves and how rapidly things have changed since, you know, you probably started this book to where we are now. Did you envision that 
that we would kind of be where we are now with like fast, like every fast food chain, you know, having these very popular forms of, you know, technically modified foods and, and the, like the, the beyond burgers and that stuff on menus. Did you envision like things would change so rapidly? That's, that's a great point, which is that food tech is really rapidly overhauling our food system and the things that we know of as real food. Um, but it was already happening. So everything in my book is actually pretty on point. Like it, it, more has happened, like maybe more investment or, you know, the fact that Impossible once is considering an IPO that isn't in my book, but everything is pretty much like accurate in my book. Um, I did a lot of tinkering at very late in the game of editing, which I'm sure my publisher didn't love. Um, but I was like, we have to get this right. Like I have to fix this or I have to update this. You know, one of the, uh, a big vegan company in Southern California called Follow Your Heart just sold to Danone after being in business since the seventies. And I know the founder I've talked to him frequently. Right. So it was like big news. And I was like, I was like, I'm going to footnote this and they let me. So um, my publisher is Abrams press. So thank you to Abrams press for letting me edit to the very last minute. Um, But you know, there are, there are things missing and um, a a, a food cultured meat company just changed its name. Like that was a big deal. So that is actually wrong in my book. So, you know, it's, it's, there are are slight changes, but most, for the most part, my book is very much like, it's really today's snapshot. And I think that um, the pandemic is in it and um, like the changes that the pandemic had brought, has brought to our food system and the the lens of what's happening. I, I get to call President Trump, then President Trump, you know, so I really, I really worked hard to make sure it was as accurate as possible. How was the the process of? I mean, your your background is in journalism, and and particularly sort of very of the moment um, journalism about what's happening. Uh, how was the process of writing a book, which obviously takes much longer and requires a different approach to research? How was that different, or how did it make you um, think about these topics differently? If if it did, yeah, actually. What was so exciting about writing a book was that I looked at it like I finally get to work on something for a really long time, which is both daunting and exciting to a journalist, right? Usually I've got an assignment and I have to work on it quickly in a week. And to have months and months and months to work and to research was invaluable and like informative and getting to talk to so many experts, getting to talk to startups that I had met over the last you know, five years again and again. And like, (laughs) I'm sure they hated all of my email checkups, like, Hey, anything new since we last talked? Um, so getting, getting to really immerse myself and research, like reading studies, like there are tons of nutritional studies and food studies that are fascinating things to like help inform you as an eater. And most people don't have the time to read it. And I, I got that opportunity. And the pandemic, actually, it slowed down my publishing date. Uh, the book was supposed to come out fall last year. And because of the pandemic, it's coming out now June, right? So, you know, nine months later. But in the end, it actually was really good, I think, for my book to have more time. Yeah. Um, you, I mean, going back to that, uh, what you mentioned earlier um, around health and food, I, I thought you made a really interesting point. I think it was in the introduction very early on in the book about kind of that inherent contradiction that we that we're seeing today in our food system that at the same time 
it is both the healthiest, the safest it's ever been, but also the most unhealthy and most, uh, I mean, almost intentionally unhealthy, uh, criminally unhealthy in many cases. Um, how, how, do, how do both of those things exist in the same moment in food? And, and would you talk a little bit about how those contradictions play out across the, the, the new kind of tech powered food that you're talking about? Yeah. So, well, there are two, two, two different things that you want to compare, which is that food safety. Yes, we are much in a much better place that our food is safe to eat. However, there's tons of legacy crap, excuse the language in our foods, like artificial dyes and saccharin and other ingredients that the FDA has on a list that they need to get out of our our foods, but then they give manufacturers just years and years and years to work out of their system. Even there, there's a new nutrition facts panel that is like slowly releasing, right? That has like added sugars and has different vitamins, like different key pieces that we've learned over time are more important to know. And it's still not universally out there. So um, there are still just like legacy problems in the food system. And I think that food tech is is can take advantage of that. So many of the food tech companies go after something called grass, which is generally recognized as safe. So Impossible Foods uses something called heme, which is an iron, a form of iron, and they use a plant-based form that they make through genetic modification. And they were able to get grass for heme, which they use for several different things, which is so interesting, right? Like this single ingredient they say, makes their burger taste like meat. They also use it as a food coloring. So they were able to get um, grass for it as a food coloring, which is brand new. So it's like, it's like this like fascinating, magical ingredient that can do whatever they want. They also say that the heme can make fish taste like fish or bacon taste like bacon, like that anything, it works in anything. It helps uh, catalyze reactions in the food. So um, I think that, and when companies get grass, the data and the science behind like proving their point all comes from the company. So like, to me, that's not really, that's not, that doesn't make me feel confident that what I'm eating is safe. It makes me like wonder, um, has the FDA really gone to the lengths that it needs to go back when rennet was produced, rennet used to come from, well, it might still, it's used in cheese making and it can't comes from the lining of calves, stomachs and cheesemakers use it to coagulate milk. So eventually companies realize we should make a, a version from the lab so that we don't have to do this and so that vegetarians can eat it. And so they did, but it took like three years to be approved. Um, I'm getting the number a little wrong. I'm not exactly saying the right amount, but it took a very long time. And instead, you know, for impossible to get a team approved, it was like, you know, seven months. Um, again, these numbers, these numbers are all in my book. So I've got the right numbers in my book. And impossible has also been pretty secretive about what's, what's actually, what he actually is or what's in it or how they make it, which, which doesn't, <laughs> doesn't inspire a whole lot of confidence either. Exactly. So, you know, their heme is made, you know, it's genetic modification of a soybean root nodule, and they're using, um, most likely a yeast to expel this protein that they want to use in their burgers. And, they farm this work out to DuPont. So DuPont makes it for them at a plant in Mexico. This was when last I checked, confirmed this data. This was um, about two years ago. So yeah, they don't tell us these things. They don't, they don't, there's IP wrapped up in food tech and this IP 
and intellectual property is what gets them investment. And investors like to see technology and they want that. So this technology um, like makes our food a, a system that we don't know and we won't, we won't get to know because it's secretive. So it was all those things that, that made me write the book, which was like, I don't want it to be so secretive. Um, if our bad health, if like cardiovascular disease and rise in diabetes, if, uh, hypertension, all the deaths from COVID because are gen- definitely health related, right? If we have all those, these things because of the American diet, and these new foods are also just industrialized foods, like kind of like using the same system we've always been using, like what happens to our health in the future? If we just eat the analogs, but the analogs are made the same way the past foods were made, um, is, are we in trouble? Or do we continue to be unhealthy? Um, but yet maybe we're saving the planet, right? But maybe the climate improves, but our health is still poor. And that's still a big maybe if there's still all of this secrecy about how these how things are formulated. We don't really know the impact, the environmental impact. Right. Um, but I think it, I really, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, you made a really good point about this, like this issue of safety and what, what is safe food. And, um, and, you know, I, I actually, there's this show on the history channel, the food that built America. And they talk about like what was happening as America was industrializing and what was going on with the food system. And it's fascinating because like people would really just sell you like rotten meat and that was okay. Like food that had all of these, you know, things that would literally make you sick as soon as you eat it. And that is obviously unsafe. But like now we're at a time where the foods that you eat, they still might make you sick, but can you make that, can you easily make that like direct identifiable connection if it's going to take 10 years or it's going to take 20 years? So like this idea of like food and safety, I think is really interesting that you kind of dive into that. And, you know, I'm just thinking about like the legal aspects of it because the thing about the law and I feel like the issue with like tech and food right now is because, you know, we we would think like the FDA would, you know, be on top of things. But the law is the way our American legal system is. It's never going to be as fast as as the technology. Right. So, like, as soon as the law or the nutrition facts labels are amended to show a trans fat or an added sugar, the technology is going to be able to quickly adapt. So. You know, I wonder, like, what's what is the answer and can the answer be like found through like through something like making sure nutrition facts are more transparent? Yeah. Um, one thing. So one thing to, to, to realize that I that I make I make this point in my book, which is that the FDA is reactive. It's not proactive. And so that is a concern of mine. And I, I make the point, like, as Ethan said, which is that our food probably has never been safer, but now we've got all of these things coming into our food system, right. That are really complicated. And so like with take cultured meat, cultured meat will be uh, regulated by both the USDA and the FDA. And these two agencies have to work together to make sure that what we're eating is safe. Um, cultured meat has already launched in Singapore, upside foods, which used to be called Memphis meats and is in my book. They, um, 
have announced that their chicken is going to come out as soon as they can get regulatory approval in the United States. And that's big. Like it could be in six months. And um, the FDA is they're they're racing to keep up with the information and the technology. And is their agency like big and robust enough to 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 really look out for us? And no. uh, it, as proven in the past, <laughs> right? No. And as proven in the past, like capitalistic food companies, Nestle, General Mills, Kellogg's, Tyson, they're not looking out for our health. They're looking out for our profit. So now we've got these new mission-based technology companies, which I do believe their founders want to create something better, but I don't think that um, we're looking at the American diet as being so, so problematic that just replacing the different cogs within the diet makes us healthier. They're not going to make us healthier. And the nutrition facts panel is the most um, replicated graphic in the world, but only a small percentage of us look at it. And I really look at it. I do think like from the pandemic, QR codes have really popped up and have become bigger and bigger and more widely used. And so potentially there's a way that QR codes could, could drive us. We're in the market shopping and we scan a QR code and we can read a lot more about the foods. But then again, it's like, are people going to do it? Right. It's, we're late. We're lazy, right? We, we don't want, we want packaged food. We want snacks. We want convenience. So it's a, it's a real, it's a real tough one. And yeah, you know, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think it's necessarily that we're lazy. It's that like, you know, when you're at a store, it's like very intentional that you're bombarded with like things that are like bright colors and things that, you know, you're drawn to. And, you know, when, when it comes to like a label to kind of warn someone like, Hey, this might be hazardous for your health. Like if you go to like Europe, for example, and you see cigarettes, the labels on there are like very big. So it's I like, I feel like it's just, it's simply, we are all like, we are all kind of consumers of marketing essentially. And, you know, your point about the FDA is like such a great point. Cause I actually, I used to work with the FDA when I was um, an attorney in DC working at, the Department of Justice. And, you know, I was working with stuff where we did joint things with the FDA. And the thing about the FDA as an agency is that they don't have teeth. So kind of like the EPA, right? They can have regulations, but if you break those regulations, nobody is necessarily going to jail. They are not like the kind of agency that can actually like um, enforce as emphatically the, the regulations that they come up with as other agencies can. And it's interesting. It's very curious that when it comes to our food, like, you know, the very thing that, that keeps us here and nourishes us, um, that that's not an agency that necessarily has teeth or, you know, necessarily has even the manpower to, to even attempt to keep up with how rapidly, you know, our food systems are changing. Absolutely. And when, you know, some of the foods we're eating come with, have ingredients, like 20 ingredients, right? And those ingredients come from all over the world. How is that regulated? How is that like watched over? You know, pea protein comes predominantly from China. I mean, we, we do also have it in North America, but it often peas are grown here and they're shipped to China and they're fractionated, separated for their protein. And then that protein comes back here, you know, knowing that your food is, um, components that come from all over the world and are, you know, watched over kind of in ways we don't know 
it, it makes me wonder. I, I think I worry less about like the, the safety of foods versus the selling us foods, the way they sell and market us foods to, um, you know, we, we get like the impossible burger is, is delicious. It's got fat, it's got salt. It's got all the like things to like hook our brains on like wanting more, right? They don't want us just to eat one or two burgers a month. They want us to eat them much more frequently, all of these things. Right. And so I always tell people eat as much variety as possible. Don't eat the same thing. Um, and don't eat things too often. Um, but that's not what makes people money. So like you said, this marketing and branding, like how we're bombarded with these messages and even messages, these companies have messages and stories out like years before they have foods out, right? Because they want their names to be known. I, I was really struck. I mean, to that, to that point, I was really struck in reading the book by the extent to which, uh, our food choices, I mean, our food choices have always been determined by big corporations, but, but these days, and, and especially around the new foods that you write about, uh, the extent to which our future food decisions are being driven by tech entrepreneurs, but really by venture capitalists or, or other investors. Algorithms. <laughs> ah, <it's so> scary. <laughs> yeah, it's, investors, like forget the founders. If it's a publicly traded company, they literally have like, it's their job to make the shareholders money. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and there's often a, a, often a very clear contradiction between money and health or money and quality or money and and uh, integrity um I, like obviously this is the wrong way to do it <laughs> but is there is there a better way uh, what how have we arrived at this point where where some anonymous very wealthy investor is going to make a decision on on behalf of potentially millions and millions of people about what they're going to be eating five or ten years from now yeah i the, I've, i wonder about the ideas of how to make our food system healthy and you know one crazy idea is like right unhooking it from capitalism which isn't going to happen. Um, right. If profits aren't, if, they, if, if instead of profits, they had to have health, um, targets also, you know, is one option. Mexico has done some really great work around soda and it's working and like, you know, Berkeley has their soda tax. And so, you know, so then there's, so it's government regulations, it's government like laws that say like, oh, you also have to have health targets, right? Or you have to reformulate your foods to make them healthier. So then there's like a whole agency that's about reformulating to make them healthier for humans. Um, I, from the pandemic, I know that companies are reformulating because they, they do know that people are like thinking a little bit more about their health and that health is related to what they eat. And so this is happening, but they're still formulating for snackability for, you know, like firing off the neurons in our brain to make us want something more um, versus like, you know, as someone with diabetes type one, I look for things that aren't too sweet because sweet tells my brain carbohydrates and carbohydrates are something I need insulin for. So I'm always looking for ways to reduce my insulin needs and reduce like how much work I have to do to manage it. So I like things that aren't too sweet, but I'm, I'm such a unicorn in that, in that desire, right? We've, but recently it's funny, I, I'm researching this sugar company that's made a whole new form of sugar that's sweeter. And so based on it being sweeter, they can put less sugar in foods, which you know, could d definitely be good. So they sent me cookies from Israel and these cookies are 
are wonderful. They're not sweet. <laughs> but then they made, they sent me some like, you know, like a chocolate hazelnut spread for the US market that like kicks me on the head, kicks me like it's so sweet. It like hits me on the head with like how much sugar it tastes like there's in it. So um, this American palate also has to be re-engineered, right? And people have been taking advantage of it for so long. So like, when do we reset our sweetness levels and how do we get there? Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st slash hrn. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. And our guest this week is Larissa Zimbaroff, author of the brand new book, Technically Food Inside Silicon Valley's Mission to Change What We Eat. Um, Larissa, you, you used a, a phrase earlier, and, and obviously it pops up throughout the book that I wanted to ask about that, that is getting more and more confusing, but also getting more and more common. And that term is plant-based, which implies that there are, in fact, plants in the food that's being produced. Uh, when, as as you discuss at great length in the book, often there are no plants, or or what we're actually talking about are the ex- extracts in in all kinds of technical ways of plants, but way way down the line through a very highly industrialized uh, production process. What what is that? What does plant-based mean when when there are no plants in the food that we're eating? And and what's the relationship between plants and chemicals in, in this process? I love that question, Ethan. So plant-based, and it's fun to go back in time, just learn how it was first coined. It, it's because it took me time to, to research this, like wh- where it comes from. And so T. Colin Campbell, who wrote The China Study, it's a great book if you haven't read it. It's decades old, but so good and still so valuable. And he coined this term plant-based and he had, he added whole foods plant-based so that because they were doing a study on vegetarian eating, he'd wanted, which was still sort of strange back then. So I think this was the seventies. And so he, he, he packaged this phrase up to, to make sure that people understood it it couldn't just be the pieces of um, like in a cookie that was plant-based, right? A Coca-Cola could be plant-based, right? So it was like whole foods, plant-based, right? Which is the diet we all know is the healthiest for us. And so 
it's, I wish I knew the first company to use it in their like naming or marketing, which would be wonderful. I don't know that. Um, so if any of your reader, if any of your listeners know, please let me know. But <laughs> so plant-based started to be used by all the companies and it became, it became such a buzzword, right? Plant-based, plant-based, plant-based. And it's almost like you can't not use it anymore. And you're right, Ethan, there aren't plants in it. It's, it's pea protein, it's uh, soy isolate, it's um, wheat, um, wheat flour, it's uh, potato starch. All of these things are just pieces of a plant. And once, once you take everything, once you pull everything apart, it's sort of like um, processed bread, right? Once you take everything apart, it's no longer as healthy as the whole. And so you're not getting what you, a pea delivers so much fiber and so many like other good things, um, phytonutrients, which have antioxidant properties in your bodies, right? You're not getting that in a pea protein burger. So, you know, I, I don't want to say don't eat these things, right? Because they're good. They're delicious. They're quick. They're easy. Like now vegans can like order something at, you know, Burger King and so great, but like, don't make that the linchpin of your diet, you know, just make that a tiny piece of it. Like I love baked goods. So that's my weakness. It's always baked goods. It's a scone. It's, you know, a cardamom monkey bread. It's like, you know, so, but, but I know that I can't eat that every day. Right. So it's like how to deliver the same message of like, live like someone with type one diabetes, like, right. Pay attention to the carbohydrates, eat as much whole foods, you know, don't eat too much sugar. Um, the diet for me is the diet for the world. And that's a really interesting point, because I think that now even the target audience for, or p the people who they are marketing, quote unquote, plant based to, it's not necessarily to vegans, right? It's now like the general public is going out and ordering, you know, a Beyond Burger instead of something else, feeling like you're making a better decision because you're getting this, this plant based vegan option. Plant-based definitely makes people feel virtuous, right? And that's not that's not what they're getting in return, right? It's that health halo, right? That plant-based is now conveying. And uh, it's something to think about. It's something for us to like watch over. I think people who care about food, it's something to like look at that plant-based doesn't mean, you know, from the farm. Right. It, it's, <laughs> it's definitely an industrialized ingredient. Yeah. yeah. There was a there was a great anecdote that came up a few months ago. I don't remember which company it was, but one of the like old margarine companies from the era of processed margarine, Country Crock, or I can't believe it's not butter, one of those. Parquet. Uh, yeah, re, just rebranded. That's what I had in my house. Right. Us yeah. too. They just rebranded as a plant-based butter instead of I don't I don't oh know that they God. made any substantive changes to the product. They just completely rebranded to meet this new this new trend. Right. Uh, that's yeah. I mean, that's like <clears throat> it's like the Coca-Cola thing line, right? It's so ridiculous to be like that it could be called plant-based or it could be called fat-free, right? Coca-Cola could say fat-free, right? Right. There's there was never fat in it. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, that's great. But can we pivot because I want to talk about the fact that, like, obviously, you're a journalist. And often when we think about food journalism, you know, we think about people writing about what restaurants we should go to or giving us a clue about a hot new chef. How is it that you got into writing about food and technology? Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up, because 
you know, I, I, re- I recall telling people I write about food and like the first question is always like, what's your favorite restaurant? <laughs> or like, oh, you have a blog, right? So it's like, it's like sort of unpacking that like food writer thing that is, can be, can be hard. And that might be one of the reasons I kind of gravitated towards food tech because it was more serious. It had more like weight. Um, but I also have this really lengthy career in the internet. And for my San Francisco Bay Area days, I worked for Yahoo. I worked for Gap Inc. I worked for Flickr. I worked for a startup in the 1.0 days that nobody knows about, or maybe people, a few people do. Um, back in like the foosball table, Aaron, uh, Herman Miller Aaron chairs, like free beer after five o'clock. Like that was to me, that was like the 1.0 days. So I, I went, I graduated through 1.0 and 2.0. I got laid off a couple times, which, you know, was was hard, but between the layoffs, between layoff one and layoff two from high tech, I decided that I was going to go to grad school and I was done with marketing. I was like, no more. (laughs) And I moved to New York and I went to graduate school. I got an MFA in creative writing, nonfiction. And that's where I finally started putting it together. Like, oh, wait, food is so important to me. It keeps like popping up in my stories or food is so important to me. I want to find out why the wheat, the rye bread at Russ and Daughters is so good. Uh, so, you know, I started like, kind of like, I started a blog. I did have a blog and I, um, you know, was writing about food. And then one day I went to, one evening I went to a, a panel at CUNY and it was the future of food journalism. And the panel was just so good. It was like Francis Lamb. It was Dana Cowan, who was then the editor-in-chief of Food & Wine magazine. It was the Ed that started Serious Eats and um, a few others. And it was just, I so after the, after the talk, which was only like 50 people were there, I just, you know, it was amazing. I, I went up and made myself talk to each one of them. And it wasn't easy, right? I, I am an extrovert, but like forcing yourself to have these like hard conversations with like big names is, can be a little daunting. Um, but when I talked to Dana Cowan, she, she said, so what's your story? you know, like in like that New Yorker, like Upper West Side kind of fashion, like, what's your story? And I realized I didn't know what my story was. Like, so her asking me that question made me pinpoint like what it was I wanted to write about. And that I wanted to have a, a, like a niche and that I wanted to, the niche to make sense for me, that it was something that I could really bring something to it. And so food tech, right, with my background in technology and then how I look at food as someone with type 1 diabetes that really looks at food, I save like I see through food, right? I see I see food from the inside out. And so it, I realized that those were the things that made me like exotic and that I could bring to um, journalism and that I could use to sort of like help people understand food and what was happening. And it was also kind of a, a new a new era in in food tech. I mean, there really wasn't much food tech to speak of, except I don't know, maybe in huge corporate settings or or in that sort of food research category. But it, I guess it hadn't penetrated into the mainstream conversation, or at least the, the consumer conversation around food. Do, was there a moment where that happened, where where most home cooks or or consumers became aware of food tech as a as a field? Yeah, you know what? That's a great point. It's it's really that like I was in New York when it was all sort of fomenting and like coming to be. And I would, I would come back, I would, I'd visit the Bay area to see my family and I would go to IndieBio, which is kind of the preeminent synthetic biology accelerator. And I started following their cohorts along and their, in their first cohort was perfect day. Who's in my book. They're making cultured dairy. They were in the first cohort. And in the second cohort was Clara foods, which is making egg proteins. 
in the lab, culturing them as well. And they're, so these two companies, like that was, you know, in like 2014, 2015. So that's when it, that's when it started. And I mean, I'm sure there were things before that, like you said, like definitely the big companies were all tinkering in their labs, but that's when like young entrepreneurs started seeing food as like something that they could overhaul and change. And I would say that people didn't realize food tech was happening to their, what they're eating until beyond meat and impossible came around. And so that was, you know, a few years ago. Um, and investors didn't start seeing food tech as something that really could make them money until beyond meat went IPO, you know, people were investing, but wall street wasn't investing. But when beyond meat went IPO, they really started investing. There, there's a, a long history of, of this conversation around um, sort of genetic modification of food, you know, going, going back to even the origins of agriculture and interbreeding of different varieties. But I don't know, it, it feels different, right? Like it, it feels different to know that that's happening in a lab or to Valerie's point earlier, it feels different that it's happening so much faster than it ever did and, and faster than legal structures can, can keep up. Uh, where, where is it going or, or what? What do you see as as the short term future for this field? And and where's the bottom? <laughs> <laughs> like how how bad can it get? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, where where's the bottom? Because at some point, I was thinking, are we just all going to be drinking soylent for every meal? Is like that where we're headed? I don't oh. I don't know. Like there are just so many different factors that contribute to this. So like, how far are we going to take? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would say like, let's look at, let's look at culture B, which is starting to come out in like little tiny baby steps. Right. So we've got it at Singapore in a chicken nugget. That's a hybrid form. It's like both plant, uh, plant-based protein, you know, and it's, uh, cultured chicken cells that are formed into a nugget. And then we've got upside foods, which was Memphis meats, which is making chicken and hopes to get that out in the next six months, but it will be with chefs and it'll be in restaurants. So the question is like, when can cultured meat become mainstream? When will it be, when will it be in every Kroger and Safeway? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm spacing on the, the, the market that's on the East coast, but anyway, what, you know, fresh direct and like where, when will it be everywhere else on Amazon prime whole foods, you know, can culture meat be sold in whole foods? This is a question I want to know, but, um, that is going to take probably decades, right. Before it, for them to, for the companies, there's like over a hundred companies that are working on culture meat and, they're getting investment. They are going to strive to get to market. It's going to take probably a decade to two decades. And it's one of the reasons I chose 20 years in my last chapter to ask, you know, kind of big names in, in the world and pop culture. I, I asked people where they saw food in 20, what would they saw on our dinner plate in 20 years? Um, because 20 years is tiny in food, but it's nothing in technology. Like it's a, it's a, it's like, it's like they, they, they can like, we're going to have cars in the sky and, you know, driverless planes, pilotless planes. Um, but this idea that cultured meat can become mainstream and come and become something that is like every day will take a few things. Like if there are more crises like COVID, that will help drive adoption of these things. 
new generations will help drive these things, right? The three of us are like, no, 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 let's be more thoughtful, right? And then the next generations or the next generation, like probably Gen Alpha, right? Maybe not Gen Z, but maybe Gen Alpha is like, screw you guys. Like, this is easy. This is fine. I don't care. They'll make a great talk dance to go with it. (laughs) Exactly. Well, it'll be something, it'll be another social media. Exactly. But, um, you know, it'll take decades for the supply chain to um, mature to what, what these culture meet companies need. Um, but they'll get there faster. Like they'll get there faster than 10 to 20 years. If, you know, we have like, you know, what if we don't have water? Like, you know, right. Like what if we don't run out of water? What if like that becomes an issue, right. Which means makes farming an issue, which means we just, we just grow things in vertical farms, right. There's, there's like the, the technology needs to speed up. A crisis could happen. So there are a few, few different things that could happen that like speeds up adoption. I don't see the things that could slow it down. I don't, I don't know yet what could slow it down, but I'm hopeful that there are ways that we can sort of be, be thinking about this more. I mean, I, I do think that, I mean, we've, we've seen even, even, even just in my business, but I think across the industry, we've seen uh, COVID especially sort of push people to reassess their, their, eating priorities where, you know, when, when you couldn't go to the supermarket to buy your usual, uh, you know, pretty processed loaf of bread, you wound up figuring out how to keep a sourdough starter and making it at home. Um, I, I don't know there, I, to me, there was some optimism, but, but I, yeah, I also don't, <laughs> I'm not optimistic in the face of the money and power and, and capitalist drive of huge food companies, uh, to keep us addicted to all of the things that, that they make and make money from. Yeah. Well, so like in my last chapter, Kim Severson, who is a writer for the New York Times in the food section, she talked about how like the younger generations like are much, much more familiar in the, in the kitchen and much more adept in the kitchen. And right there, they're baking bread and they're growing scallions and they're like doing these things that we weren't thinking about. And so she was kind of excited about the potential for the next generation to do things in a different way. So we could have sort of a backlash against the food technology that became like everything was the slow movement, right? Because we had slow food, right? We had Michael Pollan, we had Dan Barber, we had slow food that brought more transparency to our, what we were eating to the, to our plates. And now, and now we've skewed to food tech, right? So this, this pivot, this like, like deep pivot to technology changing our food could could shift back right to the Alice Waters to the farm so and then and the future generations are probably the people that are going to help us get to that point um i think i think technology is here to stay for a bit you know we'd have to have some crazy market correction for that to change um, yeah, we, but, we get asked on a pretty regular basis. Oh, so you must use blockchain to track your shipments or to, tra- you know, uh, we don't need blockchain. We just, oh, yeah. we just text message. Like it's not that complicated there that in many cases, tech or food tech is over engineering solutions that, that, that there are simpler ways to accomplish and, and hopefully better. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I actually, I want to ask, <laughs> oh, I want to ask one, one question before we hop off of the subject, because when I, you know, when I think about the future and like, you know, hoping that this pendulum will swing back to like, you know, us going outside to our garden and, you know, picking up some kale leaves to make a salad, a truly plant based dinner. Right. Um, you know, I do I do wonder about where socioeconomics comes into play with that. Right. And food access and 
you know, even as like the pendulum swings back, like who's going to get left behind and still have that really processed food because they live in a food desert and, you know, and how we can kind of like, as, as we get more thoughtful about the fact that we are and have been eating processed food for quite some time now due to technology, like how do we make sure that we are not leaving behind people who happen to be more vulnerable to the marketing and the access of these, you know, tech, technically of these techie foods. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point. There are, are, are foods like the one thing that food tech is trying to get to is price parity. So it's like, they have to get it cheaper. They have to get it cheaper so that more people can buy it so that more people will buy it. Right. It's so, and that worries me because what's going to happen is the ultra processed foods will become cheaper and they'll be, they'll be purchased by anybody and everybody, including, you know, those who are like, um, economically not as, you know, well, well off and the, the good foods or not the good foods, the, the, um, different quality foods will be at a premium, right? right? So what if cultured meat is everywhere and it's cheap and the only not cultured meat is the premium regenerative farmed lamb from tamales. And the only people that can afford that are the rich and wealthy. It's, it's sort of like vertical farms today, which their greens are typically a dollar to $2 more than other greens. And so right? Those greens are just going to the people that can already afford the greens. They're not getting to more people. So access is a problem, but, but because we have a capitalistic system and because like we have a structural inequities set up that aren't, that are so, so far unchanged, it's like, how do you get the healthy foods to these people? And also the education, right? Um, we've been educated since birth to eat, you know, kind of the right things. And that's not what happens for everybody. Um, I volunteer at a food pantry every Tuesday and the foods we give, we give out are, are good whole foods. And I wonder like if we stopped doing it, what would those people do? And so the, the support, the, the handholding, the like protective layer of like, helping people is something that needs to continue and needs to continue and evolve in a different way to make sure that, like you said, it's not just like cheap industrial food that gets like shipped down the chain. Like it is now. I mean, that's the situation you're describing. The hypothetical exactly. situation is really pretty much the exact situation that we're in today where, where genetically modified animals are pumped full of antibiotics and fed a specially formulated diet killed on a, a highly mechanized production line and sold very inexpensively. I mean, the, the fact that an animal yeah. is dying versus not dying with cultured meat is almost irrelevant, right? That in terms of... It, yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, think, I think that if the, the system, that the new system is on doesn't change. If the, if the first system doesn't change and the new system is just layered on top of the old system, then nothing changes. Yeah. And if we don't rethink our American diet, which we've like shipped out to the world and is making other countries unhealthy, then we are nowhere. That's such a great point. Uh, Larissa, let's do, let's do a couple of rapid fire fun questions before we wrap up the interview. Um, you know, we've been talking so much about plants. Uh, if you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? I would be cabbage, Napa, curly Napa cabbage. It is so versatile and it 
roasts so well. It sautés so well. It's so healthy for me. It's got tons of fiber. It, you know, I've, when I eat it, I feel like it's doing good stuff for my microbiome. It comes in purple. It comes in green. I mean, not the, not the Napa cabbage, but there's so many colors to cabbage. And I feel like it's this, like, it's like this, like stepchild of vegetables that people don't really think about. Um, and you can use it as like taco wrapper, um, a lettuce cup. You can make it, you can do cold, you can do it hot. Yeah. I'd be cabbage. Awesome. Good answer. Ferments really well. It's just very, it's the perfect vegetable. Oh, right. Pickles. Yes. I love pickles. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> I don't love cabbage, but I love your answer. Um, <laughs> all right. I'm going to switch things up a little bit. Um, let's do like a kind of fill in the blank. Food is blank. Give me like your most basic answer as to like what you think about when you think about food. Food is delicious. I love that answer. Spoken like someone who loves baked goods. <laughs> and, and I was I, in the last chapter of the book, you know, you doing this whole overview sort of blurbs from a whole bunch of different people, journalists, chefs, uh, investors about what, where they think food is going. I was surprised at how rarely the word delicious showed up in people's predictions of uh, what food was going to oh, be. Oh, wow. That's such a good point. Except for Dan Barber, yeah. who talks about flavor, yeah. right? There were a couple of exceptions, but. Yeah. yeah. He's like, that's how you know something is good for you. Flavor. Right. And he also is like, we have a vaccine. It's food. Right. So, <laughs> you know, people like Dan Barber need to be helping our food system to make changes. Yeah. That's such yeah. a good point about flavor, because like I grew up in Louisiana and I thought it was normal to like eat strawberries and blueberries that tasted like something. And it wasn't until I, I remember I was in Chicago and I bought some blueberries and it was shocking that they did not taste like anything. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I can see that. And the same can be said like across the board, whether it's eggs, you know, definitely with like poultry and that kind of thing. And we're just so used to like, you know, what, what we've been given that we, we don't even, we're not calibrated at this point even to recognize and understand like how flavorful, well cared for food is. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. My, my grandmother grew tomatoes in the seventies and, and, and well beyond that, all my childhood, my grandmother grew tomatoes and I just would give anything right to get those tomatoes now because the sun is different. The the ozone is different. Like the climate is different. Like the tomatoes I can grow are not the tomatoes she was growing. You're, you're, this, this fits perfectly into a bigger conversation we've been having on this podcast. We had a, an author named Rob Dunn, an evolutionary biologist, a few weeks ago, talk about his new book. It's called Delicious, all about the history of how humans have evolved to like certain flavors. And then we have Michael Moss coming on uh, next month, hopefully. Um, to talk about his new book, which is all about how uh, the how processed food has created addictions, uh, you know, quote unquote yeah. addictions in food. Um, are there are there other topics? I mean, this is this is a, sort of a rapid fire question, I guess. But are there other topics in food that you feel like have have not been uh, explored? Something. You know, what's, what's your I, next book going to be about? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, I definitely. I'm interested in sort of the sugar topic right now because, right, uh, there's such a big push on keto products right now. And keto foods are using a sweetener called allulose, which is made from corn in industrialized processes. And 
a lot of the companies using allulose like to have on their label, like it comes from figs, right? <laughs> and it, it doesn't, I mean, it can come from figs, but not at any levels, right? So you have to get it through corn and through industrialized um, ways. And so I, and I, I want to see how these react with my blood sugar. And again, like this Israeli sugar, that's sweeter than normal sugar, but is basically the same as sugar. Like how do these sugars affect people? How do they affect me as someone with type one diabetes? Um, and if, if companies are trying to formulate with different, right, people are using monk fruit, people are using stevia, people are using erythritol, erythritol yeah. xylitol. Can't right? be good. And so <laughs> I know. I know they they do need better names. They do need better names. So yeah, I think, I think for me as someone with diabetes, um, the book is probably could potentially be about sugar or be about how we metabolize foods differently. Um, if a sugar is sweeter and our brain senses it's sweeter, does that change how much insulin is produced? Like I have these, you know, unanswered questions. Yeah. Lots of them. Larissa, it's been so much fun and so interesting talking about this. Uh, where can our listeners pick up a copy of the book? Yes, thank you. You can order online at bookshop.com. You can get it at your favorite local independent bookstore. You can order it at any of the big guys that I won't name. You can find me and my book and my information at larissazimbaroff.com. I have events that are coming up and podcasts and radio appearances that you can find out. I have a virtual book store talk with book passages and Kate Crater will be interviewing me on June 14th at 6 p.m. And I'd love to virtually see you there. And you also recorded the audiobook. Yes. Oh my gosh. I just recorded the audiobook and it was super, super fun and also very hard to read <laughs> 230 pages. Of your own words, must be. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> of my own words. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So if you like to listen to books, I know there are a lot of you out there. Uh, yeah. Buy the audiobook. And um, as always, uh, you can reach us by email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you can find me at foodie in New York on Instagram. Thanks to Armin Spengen, our always amazing sound engineer. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song. And most of all, thank you, Larissa Zimbaroff, for writing this book and for joining us for this conversation today. Thank you, Ethan and Valerie. It was wonderful. Talk to you all next week. See you all next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.